Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I am Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. I'm going to be quick uh, with this intro, but I want to say this. Uh, Clementine Ford is my guest today and wow, what an amazing intellect and uh, wonderful uh, thinker, uh, writer. Uh, her books, Boys Will Be Boys and uh, Fight Like a Girl, um, just absolutely brilliant books. Um, loved having her on the podcast. My questions are terrible. I, I'm just going to say that up top. Uh, the reason is I've thought about it a little bit since, and it reminded me a little bit of the Mark Colvin episode in that often my interviewing style is just to have a conversation with somebody. That's the idea of the podcast. It's not a traditional interview podcast. It's meant to be a conversation. And I tend to try to just, you know, let them say things and then out of what they say, pick one of the interesting things out of it and then ask them another question. With Mark Colvin and, and with Clem, both of them, in each answer, give such amazingly detailed answers full of interesting ideas that often, instead of like one idea trying to go through the door, which was my, you know, the question, normally there's just one question that's kind of going towards the doorway. In every answer, there'd be six or seven. And so <laughs> there'd be six or seven sort of ideas or questions all trying to jam their way out of the the doorway. And so sometimes I'm a bit fumbly on my questions, but it didn't really matter. That, this was the good news. It was very much a, you know, George Michael, Andrew Ridgely situation in that uh, one person was doing most of the heavy lifting and the other person was just there um, uh, to to listen. And uh, I hope that uh, that's what you get out of this podcast. I hope that you really enjoy listening to Clem as much as I did and um, make sure you go and check out all her stuff. So uh, enjoy today's episode. A bunch of really good ones that I've already recorded coming up soon too. Uh, so uh, make sure that if you're liking the podcast, spread the word around and uh, let people know, rate it and do all those things. I don't really know how any of that works or whether you need to do it or want to do it or whatever. You know, do live your own life. <laughs> All right. Um, hope you enjoy it. Um, if you're in Darwin, I'm doing uh, my We're Legal show up there as part of the uh, Darwin Festival, but that's the only show that I have booked in for this year because I'm having um, a year off uh, some touring. Not really because I want to, because, you know, I love touring. It's my favorite part of my life, to be honest. But um, uh, life has been pretty hard over the last couple of years uh, for a range of reasons, and it continues to be so. So um, in the meantime, in the short term, uh, I'm, I'm having some time off being out and about on the road. And uh, uh, so Darwin is the only thing that I have booked in. So if you're up in Darwin, come and see the show up there. But in the meantime, you can listen to the podcast and enjoy those. Uh, I'll talk to you soon. Cheers. Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I am Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. And this is how the podcast starts. Um, I ask my guests who they are. So who are you? My name's Clementine Ford and I am a feminist slash man-hater. Slash man-hater. According to some. According to some. Now, I firstly, I know you say that uh, partly in jest, (laughs) uh, but I also find that quite hilarious when people think that... uh, you are a man-hater. Where do you think that that comes from? Oh, it's a combination of things. I think that feminism itself has always attracted that label because people are really afraid of what it means. Oh, my God, equality, that could mean that men lose something. Um, but also, I guess I'm quite uncompromising in a lot of my views and women have been conditioned over, you know, 
many, many, many generations to soothe and massage and make sure that men's feelings are taken care of at all times. And people expect feminists to do that as well. And a lot of feminists do do that, but I just feel like it's really ineffective. So I think because I'm, I am so uncompromising and I just try and state things as I see them. And men don't feel, some men don't feel, see, I'm saying some men, some men don't (laughs) feel. Not all, not all men, men. Clem, come on. (laughs) They don't feel appropriately taken care of or Uh acknowledged that that's then translated as me being a giant, big, fat man hater. There's so much of this that, um, you know, I'm sure we'll unpack and and talk about as we go anyway, but it is that one that I find almost the most hilarious, which is how fragile Men are when it comes to these sorts of things, because for men who often pride themselves on, you know, the capacity for, you know, battle on the war field or on the sporting Mm. field or, you know, the cut and thrust of a, you know, a good debate, you know, the amount of times online people are like, well, I just want to have a debate. I just want to have an argument, these sort of things. But when an insult comes back the other way, or when you, when somebody says something that you don't agree with, the hurt that comes with that and the offense that comes with that is something that I find particularly, I guess, disappointing, sometimes amusing, I think. Yeah, but. it's pretty revealing. It's like that great um, meme that went around a little while ago that, you know, says basically the clitoris has more than 8,000 nerve endings and it's still not as sensitive as a man on the internet. <laughs> Which, you know, is sadly very true in my experience. Yeah, I I shared a meme once on my Facebook page that said, um, it was a quote, it was, quote, how is that racist, end quote, slash white person proverb. And I shared that because it's hilarious because white people, we do that all the time. Oh, how's that racist? In the same way that men are like, how's that sexist? Because as long as the target isn't us, we feel like we have control, you know, we should have control over saying it. So I shared that and I swear to God, the same men who come in and insist that women just need to take words, that it's just a joke, it's a a joke, not a dick, harden up, Um, that just need to take it like we need to get over ourselves and just learn to laugh. Oh my God, it was, it was insane. Sorry, it was insane. The depth to which they took this comment about white fragility so personally. So, you know, it's it's a it's a weird area to jump into, but we might as well jump into because I I, I don't know. Um, of course, it's hard to hear things that you feel uncomfortable about. And of course it's hard to hear things that you go, oh, I feel like that's not me. And, you know, therefore, you know, I guess I feel attacked by, you know, that statement or that broad assumption or these sort of things. But I, that next step of assuming that when somebody makes a broad statement, that it also applies to you is a weird one for me. Why yeah. do you think that it is? Is it because that men just haven't been challenged in this way and in this area and it is a new thing for your men to sort of suddenly go, oh, hang on. I thought if, you know, it, it feels sometimes like when you're a white straight man, you know, and that's what I am. Yeah, I, I know. I know. I'm <laughs> I'm sorry. leaving. I can't do anything about it. Uh, but it feels like you woke up at, you know, one day and just like, hang on, I'm the bad guy? Like, I thought everybody loved white straight men. Of course, yeah. that's never been the case. But I think there's been this... The way the world was arranged and the way the world has operated, yeah, exactly, (laughs) was to reinforce that being the case. Uh, The example that I always use, and this is very much just a a general example, but about work, right? Um, I grew up on a a, a road, Anderson's Road, Denison, 
dairy farm, 250 people. My dad's a farmer, his dad was a farmer, my brother's a farmer, you know? Mm-hmm. Like it wasn't a showbiz family. I wasn't born into the industry that I work in, right? I worked very hard to get where I am. But I also recognize that it would have been harder for, you know, my sister to have done the same thing as I have done because it would have been extra hurdles in her way. Or if, you know, if I had been an Asian person or a brown person or whatever, there would have been extra hurdles mm. in the way. It doesn't take away from my journey and how hard I've tried to acknowledge that that would have been more difficult for other people. I assumed that I could do my job because when I turned on the TV and saw people doing this job, they, they looked, looked like, like me. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a ton of things going on there. And and firstly, I'll just say that my area of expertise is obviously talking about gender equality. And um, although equality, I'm moving away from that term more like liberation is what I'm interested in, because I think you need to change. You can't seek equality within a system that is inherently unequal and has been set up to um, prefer and and make allowances for one group of people. So it's really more like you need to dismantle the system entirely and start again. So anyway, that's a separate topic. But So I I speak about gender, but the same thing, the same fragility can be applied to race relations, like white people, of which I am one, we are extremely fragile when it comes to being criticised and and, or even just asked to think about our privilege and the way that we move through the world with benefits that are invisible to us, but, uh, but that we assume are ours by right. Um, so I guess what it is, is that, you know, when you exist as part of the dominant status quo, all of that privilege has been made invisible for your own benefit. And, you know, it's like I, I saw Knox Grammar's just built a $47 million performing arts centre. And I feel like a lot of people who come out of that school who clearly come from money and privilege and have have their entry and their pathways through life completely you know, smoothed out for them and manicured lawns, etc. that a lot of those people are going to turn into the kinds of people now who say things like, well, if you want something, you've got to work hard for it. And there's a very big difference between being born into a life of privilege and being born into a situation where you have to work hard. Now, in your situation, you didn't come from a showbiz family, like you said. Um, things may have been more difficult for you than someone who was born to someone in that industry, but you were never held back by the fact that you are a man or by the fact that you're white. So those two things are what, um, you know, those are two really big examples of how people can start to think about privilege differently. Yes, of course, there are men in the world who struggle and, you know, patriarchy itself inflicts a lot of damage against men. It, it harms them in different ways to the ways that it harms women and it gives them certain levels of benefit too, but it is harmful. But the thing is that, you know, class, someone might be oppressed by class, but if they're a white man oppressed by class... Their issue is class. It's not whether or not they're white and it's not whether or not they're male because if they're a white man who wasn't oppressed by class issues, they'd have it made in the shade. Um, and I guess that's that's what ends up being so frustrating and why people get so personally aggravated by it is because they haven't yet come to the realisation in their head that these are conversations that they need to be having if they want to be the good person that they claim to be. Now, I don't think that anyone can claim to be a good person. I think that goodness is a state to which we must always be striving towards. And that means that every day when we wake up, we have to accept that there are certain things that we experience privilege in. And we have to to seek to understand those things and recognize all of the ways that those things are made invisible to us. As a white person who also has a middle class background and is university educated, I move through, through the world significantly m- more easily than women of colour in this country, particularly Aboriginal women. And 
it's not enough for me just to wake up and say, but I'm a good person because that's where my, that's where my commitment to being an ally and a commitment to being someone who actively tries to dismantle structures of oppression in this country ends the moment that I say, well, I don't need to do anything because I'm a good person. And to finish that sort of thought process, if I am saying to you, if I'm talking about, you know, rape culture or sexual assault or the risks that women face by being out in the street and you as a man say, well, I feel personally attacked by that because you're not acknowledging that I'm not one of those men. Firstly, I don't know that you're not one of those men. That's the thing is that most women are assaulted by men they do know and we don't think that those that they're one of those men. But also we're actually literally being attacked, not just being personally attacked by an idea or by words. So to equate those two things actually shows how um, unwilling the listener is to actually consider the bigger picture. You know, it is uncomfortable to listen. It is uncomfortable to hear things about the reality of your own privilege or your own complicity even. But I feel like it's a what we need to lean into is this idea that being uncomfortable is actually really beneficial for us because the only way that change can occur is if we actually upset the system, is if we actually agitate the cell, you know, cells and, and ideas and thoughts to make us become agents of change. The moment that we kind of just sit back and say, well, I'd, it's not really anything to do with me because I'm a good person, is us actively choosing to take one person out of the fight, that person being ourselves. Being uncomfortable should be seen as a gift because if you feel uncomfortable about the things that someone's telling you, then it indicates at the very least that you are not aware of some of the issues that they face in their day-to-day lives. And that's your privilege, making you unaware of those things. But it also means that you more likely than not are guilty of some of the things that they're talking about. So lean into it, welcome it, feel uncomfortable, and use that discomfort to actually try and strive towards goodness. Okay, so there's so many... These are such big, brilliant issues and fun things to talk about, I think. And... Leaning into the discomfort is such a great way of talking about, you know, the idea of being around ideas that aren't the way that you've seen the world previously, or being around ideas that provoke you into seeing the world that you've seen all your life in a different way, to examine your own behavior, you know, and that can come with an element of judgment in it. Absolutely, it can. And go, oh, actually, you know what, if I had my time over, knowing what I know now, you know, I wouldn't have behaved in that way or would have acknowledged that when I was talking to that person, we, when I thought we were talking as equals, you know, that was not how that other person saw that, you know, arrangement. And if I'd stepped back from it, maybe I would have like been able to go, oh, hang on. Well, maybe we weren't equals in that situation, yeah. even though I was seeing myself as an equal in that situation because I hadn't had the opportunity to have my thoughts provoked. There's a lot of big ideas there that I, I want to talk about, but what I might do is ask you about um, kind of some specific things and, and see if that, you know, gets to the broader issues. Um, what do you think is the toughest thing that we have at the moment about having these conversations? What is it that's standing in the way of us, you know, just going, okay, we're all fucked up. We're all flawed. There's not one of us that is perfect. When, you know, when we say this is a problem, if if you're not one of the people who are, you know, the, the rape, like you, you said it, so I'll go to that example. You know, mm. if you're offended by somebody saying, you know, the majority of, you know, people who are rapists are men 
and the majority of people they rape are women. I mean, you know, and that's all backed up by criminology that, yeah, stats. That's just that, that's it's just a fact. a fact. Like, and if your argument is, well, men get raped too, it's like, yeah, and mostly by men also. Again, so like men being the perpetrators of and, and that. sorry, just quickly, we should also acknowledge that one of the reasons why male survivors of rape feel so hesitant about coming forward is because of patriarchal expectations on masculinity. It's not feminism or the striving for gender liberation that prevents men from seeking help for the crimes that have been done to them. It's their own fear of being judged as somehow falling short. But also if you're not one of the people, like if you genuinely are not, you know, if you are genuinely offended by going, well, that isn't me and that's what I don't think that, you know, men are, are like, then be angry at the people who are letting down your team. Don't be angry at the people who are pointing it out. You well, know, Yeah, and I mean, even on a more basic level than that, not just being angry at the men who are letting down your side yeah. and like damaging your reputation or whatever, just be really fucking angry that it's happening. Yeah. You know, you might not have ever perpetrated a crime to that extent, but the fact is that, you know, one in five girls and women over the age of 15 have experienced some form of sexual violence. And the, the figure is probably estimated at much higher than that, actually, because so few report. So be angry about the fact that, you know, edging towards, let's say, a third of all women that you know have experienced some sexual violence, almost certainly, or, well, I wouldn't say almost certainly, but most likely at the hands of a man. Like, don't be angry that they're letting down the side. Be angry that women are being hurt. Women and children are being hurt. I mean, I think that, I also think it's important to break down the extent of harm so, yes, you could be a man who's sitting there and saying, well, I've never raped anyone. Um, maybe you haven't. Maybe you've coerced someone, though. Maybe you've ignored a no or you've pushed that no until it becomes a yes. Maybe you didn't consider your partner in the equation. But let's just say you haven't even done any of that. Have you ever laughed at a rape joke? Have you ever not laughed but stood there uncomfortably and didn't know how to challenge the person who was saying it so the person who was saying it felt like it was okay that they said it. There's so many different layers of how people participate in rape culture and participate in helping to kind of support the ecosystem of it that it's actually not enough, I don't think, to just say, well, I'm not a rapist. Yeah, like that's great. Good for you. You don't get a medal, by the way. But I think it's really important to look at why that that culture of even just joking about it. I mean, you're a comedian and we, you, we know that I've written a lot about, uh, you know, I, I prefer to call them rapist jokes in the comedy world because rapist jokes are the ones that the rapist is most likely to laugh at. The, the imbalance of power in a comedy room when a straight white man like you is standing on stage and telling a room of guffawing people, most of whom, will, you know, the heartiest laughers will be men for whom this is mostly a theoretical concept and telling jokes about how funny rape is, is a deeply uncomfortable situation for most of the women sitting in the room, if not all of the women, probably a few of the men. And yet challenging that always, is always taken as being like some kind of assault on free speech and assault on the sanctity of comedy. And the thing I love most is when, again, the men for whom this content is, is largely theoretical turn around and say, well, we should be allowed to, jo to joke about dark topics. That's a way of relieving tension. And it's like, who's, you know, to go to the brilliant Hannah Gadsby's um, discussion of comedy as a way of setting up tension and then relieving the tension, whose tension is being relieved by a rape joke? 
How is that relieving tension when women are still being raped every single day in this country and some women, as we know, are being raped and killed? What tension does it relieve to tell a joke that aligns yourself with the perpetrator of that crime rather than with the survivor of it? And I will say that I don't think it's impossible to tell jokes about rape as a topic, but I just think that the punchline has to be about rape culture itself and not at the expense of the people being victimised by it. And uh, I... That's kind of deviated wildly from your original question. No, that's absolutely fine too because I want to talk about all this stuff and I don't have a necessary... One of the hardest things I uh, find about actually this, this conversation that we've had so far is that there are so many things that I want to talk about in, in everything that <laughs> well, you I'm say. A, I'm a deeply fascinating person, Will. Well, it's true, though, because there are you, there's so many ideas in every single thing you're saying, and I think so many of them go to the core of, you know, the time that we're in, um, but also to the core of, you know, I you know, spend a lot of time thinking about the person I've been versus mm. the person that I am versus the person that Same. I want to be, and... You know, having grown up in this time where, you know, it's kind of, you know, I mean, again, this is a really, I'm just saying this in a very contrite way, but, you know, but just to, to make the point, to set the scene, you know, the last, yeah, the last great days of the, you know, straight white mare, you know, like I had a joke about it in this year's comedy festival show. I was like, you know, come on guys, we had a good run. We made it almost all the way to the end, you know, so like. Yeah, because the world is going to end. It's about to end, yeah, right? like literally. But the point being that, you know, I have gone from being a great beneficiary of, you know, working at a time where, you know, the ABC had so many guys who looked like me, they gave us all shows, you know, Mm. to a time where, you know, the idea that there are other voices and other perspectives and this is not necessarily how the world has been seen. I've got to live through, you know, a bit of that changing time, I think, and being challenged by the times changing myself and being challenged by the idea that in a general sense, I think I've tried to be a good person. But like you said, the idea that you somehow can be a good person and that you haven't fucked up so many times mm. along the way and you've got two choices when you're fucked up, right? You, you, you can either claim that they were never fuck-ups and, you know, the, the whole... Dig city, your heels Yeah, in. right, dig your heels in. Or you have to genuinely stare mm. at the things that you have done in your life that you feel... Yeah, terrible about or uncomfortable about, you know, to various different Mm. degrees and go, well, how do I reconcile, you know, Mm. how I behaved in this situation? What led me to behave, you know, in this way, in this situation? How can I not behave in this way, in this situation ever again? And that can be from a range of things, but I would be lying to you if I didn't say that over my lifetime, there hasn't been, Felicity Ward um, was on this podcast. podcast once and she said a really good thing which I loved and I, like really resonated with me which was like if you're terrible if you get a bit handsy you know when you drink too much then your responsibility is to not drink too much mm. rather than going oh you know that's just him oh, when he has like a few drinks drink. yeah which is your responsibility is if you're like that when you drink don't, don't drink. drink you know yeah. and so don't put yourself in a situation where the worst aspects of your behavior would be revealed mm. And, and so, expect everyone else to And then expect the everybody else will be like, well, that's yeah. just that, right? Yeah. So those sort of situations, for example, would be an example of where I'm like, ah, oh, you know what? That day you behave really badly. That day you were rude to that mm. person at that party or whatever. Y- yes, you were not in, you know, that's not what you're normally like, 
but you were the person who put yourself in the situation mm. that. And it's and it's a really good point as well because you know sort of looping back to that idea of of like to what extent are people complicit, and you know you might not personally be the one who's being handsy while they're drunk, but it's a really common story for say women to have complained about the the actions of a person in social situations and to complain about it to their male friends and even to their female friends. You know, women are, women are just as good at propping up these structures as men are because we've been so deeply socialised into it. But to make those complaints and hear that exact excuse, oh, you know, well, he doesn't mean it. He's just like that when he gets drunk or you just, you know, he didn't mean to, to do that or, you know, you just got to cut him some slack or something. And you think, well, these people are being protected and and because it's it it feels easier for people to allow say in that context it feels easier for people to allow a broad range of women to go on being molested at a party and having to absorb what that means for them and be quiet about it than it does to be just a bit awkward and have a conversation with your friend about how he's he should stop drinking you know because he's bad to women and I think that that's something that a lot of men probably need to examine in themselves as well. To what extent have they allowed their friends to get away with certain behaviours because it feels more awkward to them and more personally threatening to them to have to kind of upset that apple cart than to allow the apple cart that is upsetting women's lives to sort of like continue kind of railroading them. So anyway, this look... Oh, but it, I, th- I think that you make a you make a really good point about, you know existing in this time where you get to witness all these things. And I think that, you know, to, it's, it can be really powerful for people, even when they are feeling uncomfortable, to try and shift things and reframe them in their heads. So, yes, I feel uncomfortable a lot of the time as well. I'm learning about privilege every day and I and I am learning I, and I'm not anywhere near have a 100% success rate at, you know, combating my own privilege and kind of engaging with it it's it is a constant daily sort of reminder to to be active in that but i think that to to reframe it and think you know we're so lucky to be in a time in the world now where we get to watch previously marginalized groups rising up and be you know claiming the power that they have and in lots of cases, using an excess of patience that they, you know, would be well, in, you know, they'd be well entitled to not be that patient to actually try and create positive change. Um, I think that to, to see that, to see someone's efforts to try and combat your own behaviour as being another privilege that you have as opposed to an attack on you is is a really powerful thing because to be able to change and to be able to be, to truly kind of become a better person and a better person to the people around you is something that we should all feel extremely grateful to have the opportunity to do. I often look back on, you know, you talk about the idea that the patriarchy can be bad for men too. And that's the one that I reflect on a lot because I remember particularly you know, these inbuilt ideas in my head about what it meant to be a man and particularly in relation to, yeah, I mean, I just remember being 14 or 15, you know, and the way that, you know, we, we spoke about 
women, you know, spoke about girls, I suppose, at that stage, you know, like, you know, girls our age, but, you know, the sexualization of those girls, you know, that's how guys spoke to each other. And it was just... Oh, that's just cons- how guys talk. Yeah, it's just how guys talk. And yet, and then those messages and those ideas about what it means to be a man and, you know, mm. get so ingrained in you that even if you later you know, kind of move away from that as being the perspectives through which you see the world, you often find that they're just still there, you know, kind of ingrained into your brain. And I, I feel like that, I do feel angry about that. You know, I, I, I do hope that the boys of today are raised better than how I was raised and with better messages to how I was raised because I don't think it's a worse world. You know, it's like this idea that, you only think that equality is a bad thing if you think that, it, like, you know, you... Oh, God, it's so hard. I I am finding this a really difficult... You are brilliant, and I'm loving every bit of what you're saying, and I am having a really difficult time today putting into words what I want to say. Because Look, it's there a very are... broad... It's a very broad, challenging topic, and you're also coming at it from the perspective of... You're not an outsider to the situation. You're a, you're a man who is, how old are you? Uh, 45 years so old. You're a 45-year-old man who has been socialised for four decades because the first five years you would have just been socialised in your household and I don't know what the dynamic between your parents was. You know what, I'm, like I will say this, this is a bit more comfortable ground for me, <laughs> which is uh, my, my parents are farmers and one of the great things about being farmers is that um, you get to see your parents work. A lot of other people don't get to see their parents work. You know, their parents go off to work and often, you know, particularly of my era, the dad went off to work and mum stayed home and was a mum, right? But I, that wasn't what I grew up with because when your parents are farmers, they are farmers together. Mm. They both do various tasks on the farm and you are in the same place where they both are. So one of them will go out the house to do this. The other will go out the house to do this, but you are part of seeing them both work and seeing them work alongside each other. And I remember distinctly like early on, I can't remember how old I would have been, but I remember this distinctly. One day I said to someone, I said, my dad's a farmer and my mum's my mum. And my mum made it very clear to me that they were both, both farmers. farmers. Yeah. Good on you it. Know, and, so I was lucky in a way that I grew up seeing mm. that side-by-side dynamic and it had been mm. pointed out to me that, you know, it, it, I didn't have that sort of raising, at least in that way, mm. of there being, you know, that male and female. But in a lot of other ways, my dad is still the sort of, you know, that traditional Australian man-dad personality type and my mum was more the, you know, what you would you know, define in that sort of traditional cliched yeah. Yeah, mum type still. I mean, I know you didn't mean it like this and, and so this is not a personal critique of what you Please said. Please do. No, it's just, it just reflects actually the way that, you know, that how incredibly deep that conditioning is, that motherhood is work. Oh, yeah, You absolutely. know, and I, I know yeah. that's not what you were saying, no. but, you know, that it is true that one of the reasons why these ideas perpetuate is because we've completely isolated the work that women do as mothers. And, you know, today... M- three out of four women go out to work as well, you know, in paid employment. But we've completely separated the work that they do as mothers and kind of it's dismissed as being meaningless. And this is, this is how, this is how certain levels of 
oppression and marginalization towards women continue is because the work of raising children, not only we are, are we largely responsible for it and is it largely thankless, um, you know, women perform the vast bulk of the world's unpaid domestic labor. In Australia alone, women save the economy billions of dollars every year by breastfeeding, um, which is labor. And and we we for all of this work and this this contribution that we make to the Australian economy, and it shouldn't I don't think you should think of liberation in terms of economic gain, but that is important to some people. So let's look at it in terms of economic gain gain. For the contribution that women as mothers make to the Australian economy and the you know that you know that women's labor is not counted amongst the gross domestic product universally or in Australia. So we're actually contributing billions of dollars worth towards the economy every year and completely unacknowledged for it. And the work that we're doing is completely discredited as, as being easy. Um, it's dismissed. You know, there's a really interesting comparison with the, the wage gap and how the wage gap sort of manifests itself. I mean, a, a lot of people think of it as being as simplistic as, you know, well, men and women aren't being paid the same for the same job. And then they say, well, I work at McDonald's and I get paid the same as blah, blah. It's like, well, that's because you're on a, um, what's the word? Like a wage, um, fuck. An hourly set wage is different to a negotiated salary in private employment. And also the gap itself refers to the labor that women do and the, particularly when it comes to raising families and motherhood and the time that they take out of the workforce to have children and to recover from birth, which is no joke, um, the gap then that creates that is created between men and women, which results in men having, you know, approximately a million dollars more in superannuation at the end of their working life. That's a big part of what the gap is. And, you know, you kind of think about when people say things about politicians like, oh, well, we need to we need to create high salaries for politicians so that we attract the best people for the job. We need to pay engineers this level of money, you know, so that we get the best person for the job. Or the reason that men and women get paid slightly differently in this company is because men are more reliable and, and women have babies, even if those women don't have children, you know, it's just assumed that they will. And then you look at childcare in this country and childcare workers are among some of the lowest paid people in the country. And if you were to say to a CEO, for example, whose children are in childcare so that he and his wife can both work, um, well, you think that you need to create a high salary to attract the best person for the job here who will invariably be a man because you think that that's what attracts the best person for the job. Why are childcare workers, why are the childcare workers who are raising your children paid so poorly, don't you believe that childcare workers need to be on high salaries to attract the best people to take care of your children, which is arguably one of the most important, or you would see as being one of the most important jobs in the world? And people think about that very differently because they think, well, childcare is a profession that is largely staffed by women and women go into childcare because they love children and they would do the job anyway. So women who predominantly work in the care industries are paid poor salaries because we are because care work is seen as the natural domain of women seen as something we would want to do anyway but also i think it, at its heart people don't really care that much about remunerating remunerating women properly for the work that we do and and perhaps even as you said like the idea that 
childcare is normally free. You know, yeah. as in at home, you get it for free. So I'm not going to pay heaps for it well, no, if and, a stranger does it when yeah. it's peop- free and, at and home. And how many, how many times have you heard a, a couple, and it always grates me when I hear the man say it, and it usually does seem to come from the man, oh, well, she was going to go back to work, but her salary barely covered the childcare. Mm. Okay. If you have two salaries and you have a single, you, you view that as being a single source of income, then yes, you can say that, your childcare costs however much a year, and so it doesn't change dependent on who's making that money. But it is a philosophical difference to say her salary barely covers the childcare because what you are assuming is that not only is her salary responsible for the childcare because, of course, the children are her responsibility, but also that in order for a woman to go back to work after she's had a child, in order for her to justify that choice, she has to economically prove that her salary will be you know, sufficiently higher than the fees that she alone will be paying to make sure that her children are taken care of. Because the only reason, of course, that she could want to go back to work would be a monetary one, not for her own personal growth, her own personal satisfaction, her own personal career gains, just so that she could add a little bit more to the coffers. And I want, particularly in hetero partnerships, I want men to start thinking about why they don't think that half of the childcare fees come out of their salary. Or even if you actually look at, say, he earns $150,000 a year, which is an extraordinarily high salary. But let's just say, oh, let's say he earns $80,000 a year and she earns $60,000 a year, that he doesn't then pay slightly more in the childcare fees so that they work it out actually on an even basis, that this is this is the percentage of our salaries that we pay each week so that we can both go to work. And I think actually if people start to rethink things in terms of that, then you do, you you recognise, you make visible what that labour looks like and you make visible what that responsibility looks like so that you, you can't just continue on um, replicating these really easily hidden disparities between relationships between men and women where the domestic workload is concerned. It's amazing how in, ingrained that stuff is. I was, we were interviewing Dave Hughes on the radio this morning and we were playing a little bit of uh, audio of him on the Today Show. And the Today Show uh, hosted by women, you know, and there was women who were saying this, um, just as an example of why, how it's so ingrained, you know, in in the language around this, where he he had the kids, you know, his wife, Holly, uh, has gone back to work. She's a school teacher. And... uh, he had the kids and even they referred to it as babysitting. And it caught my ear because I was like, it's, it's funny that it's still at that point where it's so easy for all of us to say, and you know, like language is so important. I had Carly Finlay on this podcast and I've been, since she's been on, you know, I've been trying to catch myself every time that, you know, I say mad or crazy when mm. what I could say is bananas or something that isn't, you know. Uh, so ableist in my language, you know, earlier on, uh, yeah, we won't put it in, but you, uh, if you don't mind me saying this, you know, you said something, you're like, I'm trying not to use that word. And yeah, we've, we've taken that out. You know, I won't, I won't go back to what it was, but it was just, again, it was just you self-policing a little bit of language where you're like, I probably used to say it like Mm. this, you know, maybe I'll say it like this. So what is the power of words and the way that words are used in that situation? Well, I think that the people who insist that words are just words are usually the ones who never have words used against them, you know, who don't have to to wake up every day and face 
all of those, you know, little microaggressions about words that just sort of slash away at them. You know, it's like that death by a thousand cuts. Um, I mean, again, what we were talking about at the, the start of the podcast about white fragility and male fragility and white male fragility in particular being so se- seeming to crumble underneath, you know, a fraction of the kind of onslaught that marginalised people receive every day. And I think that, you know, again, Carly's a good friend of mine and she's, um, you know, she's really helped my education when it comes to ableist issues too. And I think that doing that kind of self-check-in and, you know, there's a good, really good kind of um, saying about it's, – it's not a saying, but it's a sort of a thought process that your initial response to something is – your gut feeling on something is your conditioning. It's the way that you were raised. It's the ideas that you were – that were ingrained in you from childhood. And your follow-up response is how you actually feel. So if your follow-up response reinforces your gut response, then, you know, in some cases I could say you're – you probably are as racist as people say or as sexist or whatever. But if your follow-up response is, like you said, you know, I'm going to try to catch myself, or I said that thing and now I'm trying to catch myself, then that's you actively, like, part- you know, being a, being a member of that change process, you know. I think that words are hugely powerful. I'm a writer and the words that I use are deliberately chosen to create thoughts or to make people, you're a comedian, the words that you choose are deliberately created to make people laugh. How we use words can have a much bigger impact on people's, you know, daily existences than we might be prepared to admit. And to deny the power of words, I think, is to be incredibly disingenuous and to lie to yourself. Um, so to be that kind of person who who says, uh, oh, I'm going to stop saying mad or crazy or whatever, because I understand now that that isn't cool to say that. And initially it might feel a little bit like you're having to catch yourself all the time, but we know that that self-checking really works on, you know, on an individual level and also on a social level. And one of the best examples I use for that is, um, it's how you, in terms of how you can change human behavior is in the mid nineties, I remember, or the late nineties, I was living in Adelaide and, um, they banned smoking in restaurants. And at the time, I remember people saying like, oh, well, you know, you can't ban smoking in restaurants. That's a, that's an, in, that's a violation of our rights. People love to go out and have a cigarette mid-meal. And it seemed like it would be this terrible thing that people wouldn't be able to get on board with. But now just the, like even me saying they banned smoking in restaurants, you're like, what the hell? You used to be able to smoke in a restaurant? Time was we could sit in here in this radio studio and smoke while we were doing this podcast. But if I lit up a, lit up a cigarette now, you would both look at me in horror and disgust. Um, There'd be a part of me that thought you were pretty cool. <laughs> I'd be like, look at Clem. She, yeah. she, she doesn't she play really, by the rules at all. She really does do whatever she wants. She is a provocateur. <laughs> um, and then 10 years later, they banned smoking in pubs. Huh. And it, and people then were like, okay, we'll definitely not get away with this yeah. because people love to go out and, and have a cigarette and a and a beer and what's going to happen to all the old bar flies. And again, now, you know, we know that the hotel industry and alcohol culture in this country is as thriving as ever. People are actually very malleable, I think. And the vast majority of people are followers. They're not leaders. And they want to be told what to do. It's why routine and discipline, like positive discipline, not unhealthy discipline, works so well with toddlers because they actually respond really well to routine and to knowing what comes next. And you know, again, drink driving, the the government's ads, you know, 
encouraging people not to drink and get behind the wheel have been enormously successful because social change campaigns do really work. So if you actually start to encourage people to think about the words that they use, if you have the political will and the commitment to be really forceful about it in a instructive way, not in a, you know, like, oh, if you use this word, then we're going to march you through the streets, you know, shouting shame at you. But in an instructive way, it's not going to happen overnight, but you will start having people more and more think about the language that they're using. And yes, the first few times they, they, they will go to catch themselves, but it will come to the point where they just instinctively don't even use that language anymore because they've trained themselves out of it because we are so easily manipulated. And that's positive manipulation. That's manipulating us away from bad behavior. I guess part of the resistance and, you know, I, as you mentioned, you know, comedy is such an interesting, uh, you know, when I have these discussions, you know, whether it be with Carly, whether it be with yourself around, mm. you know, what can and can't be said in comedy, you know, often, because my personal opinion is that um, certainly I'm in a place now where I welcome the confrontation about should you be saying that or is there a better way of that mm. or why are you expressing that idea in that way? I think it's actually very creative. If it forces you to think about an issue more, if it forces you to think, oh, hang on, if I make a joke in this way and half of my audience is alienated or sitting there mm. in fear or sitting there being uncomfortable, then that's a good conversation for us to be having. But it does mean that you then have to reconcile that there was a period of time where you did use that language or that sure. you did that make that sort of joke like i'll, I'll just give this but that's because you didn't think about it yes so then you have to i think often what stops people from going well i'm going to think about it now is that they don't want to have to then think about mm. the times where because if i acknowledge now that i know mm. that it's wrong i also have to acknowledge that the reason that I kept using it previously was I hadn't bothered thinking about it. Well, and even beyond words, that's, I think, a lot of the reason why a lot of men get uncomfortable in discussions, even just about sexual harassment, because they have to think about the times that they might have sexually harassed someone, but thought, oh, well, I was just flirting with them or whatever it might be, you know? You know, I mean, yes, there's times like, in my mind where I can recognize, you know, I, I hope, hopefully, I hope not a lot, but I would be lying to you if I said there hasn't been, you know, over. 25 years, some moments where in reflection, I would have been, yeah, I would say, you know, well, what? listen, there's tons of things I've done that, yeah, uh, but I don't want to, horrible. I don't want to have this conversation in a way that it, I feel like it's like, well, you know, this is about other people we're speaking about. Yeah. It's not, it's not about other people. To, everyone to, is complicit yeah. in, in the and, way that the world is, and to a whole lot of degrees, you know, from extremes to, you know, every yeah. day, there are things you know, that I need to confront about, you know, the way that I ever lived my life, not just, you know, in this area, by the way, either, you know, across the board. And that can be a very painful and uncomfortable process sometimes. But the the worst thing about it is they're just the ones that I recognize. <laughs> yeah. You know, if I'm being realistic, Somewhere I know there, there's like, probably... Who's oh, listening to this podcast? Going, yeah. Oh, there's will. probably a whole <laughs> bunch of other ones where yeah. I've not even given it a second thought. Uh, we mentioned before we started this, a conversation I had with Andy Lee. And the truth of it is that Andy, when he was, uh, and if people haven't heard it, you can go and have a listen to it. But Andy, when he publicized the podcast, he he said, this is a conversation between two people who you know, disliked each other immensely and have kind of you know, had a conversation mm -hmm. to talk about it and make up. But even in that, he was categorizing it 
like from his perspective because the truth of it is, and again, this doesn't reflect well on me, but the truth of it is, it was a conversation between somebody who had been really hurt by something that someone said and another person who hadn't really thought about it much at all mm. because I was the person doing the, the hurting. I was the perpetrator of it and I hadn't really given it a second thought because it's not like I was sitting around going, I want to be mean-spirited to this person. I was doing it unthinkingly. So if that's an, an example of it, there's got to be a whole bunch of other examples of where I've said something unthinkingly or I've acted unthinkingly that I don't even remember now to be able to reconcile. Yeah. And you know why? Because you're human. Yeah. And, you know, it's. I think it's... It's you got to walk a fine line between acknowledging that and you know committing to to do better. And I mean, obviously, in in situations where if someone has been genuinely hurt, then I think it's it's important to have those conversations. But you know, you I I don't think that there's any benefit in kind of overly self-flagellating. You know, about if if you if the if your thoughts on it. And I'm not saying that this is what you're doing, but if your thoughts on it are stuck in this loop of like, oh, I've done all these terrible things, done all these terrible things and not, I have almost certainly done terrible things to people because I'm a human being who lives in the world and we all do terrible things to each other. And I'm not saying that that makes it okay, but I am going to think about those issues and I'm going to commit to being better and moving forward and where I can make reparations, et cetera. Then that's much more positive than just kind of, I guess, sort of, you know, ending up in that shame loop about it. It's a really good, uh, really interesting thing you say there, because I think that you can, if you start to examine, you know, if you start to pull a string and you suddenly realize, oh, hang on, you yeah, know, it, you it could all fall apart. And, and there can be, a, you know, to give it the actual time it needs to acknowledge mm -hmm. other people's points of view and perspectives. And, you know, th th I think that you can, you know, there is a, an element of you that can get really stuck in that thing of going, well, how do I move forward positively from yeah. that? But I do think that when you are able to move forward positively from that, it does feel positive. You're not yeah. losing something. You are gaining something from like, I mean, even on just the level of having an understanding in my life of the times where I've acted badly and somebody else has given me the benefit of the doubt where mm. you haven't even... You know, where they're like, oh, well, you know, that this is probably not how you normally behave. I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt. Mm. When up until that point, you'd never even considered that someone had to give you the benefit of the doubt. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that there are certain situations where it's absolutely not enough to just forgive yourself and move on, you no. know, obviously. like, and it, And depending on how someone has been hurt, it's up to them to decide whether or not you're forgiven. Yeah. But I, I guess I also... The reason I kind of broadly say like there's no point in this, the act of self-flagellation alone is because I think self-flagellation can become a performance and that can become something where you're not actually engaging with what's happened. It's just you're performing to people this sort of self-examination that's not actually really going anywhere. Self-examination that leads to change and positive outcomes is what we should be aiming for. And I also think that, you know, if we don't allow people to, to – uh, engage with that process in a genuine way and to actually come out the other side where they say, I acknowledge all of these things that I did badly. This is what I'm trying to do ma to make up for it. And this is how I'm, I've changed moving forward. If we don't allow people to change, then what's the point of activism? What's the point of trying to educate people if when they 
appear perceptive to uh, sorry receptive to that education and they they do the things that we ask them to do you turn around and you say well it's not good enough i mean again that's just my own personal perspective lots of people think very differently about it and I, and i acknowledge as well that it comes from a place where you know for a lot of those issues in the same way that i think that gender oppression of women is theoretical for men a lot of that stuff is theoretical for me because I have so many layers of privilege that I, I get to kind of be buffered from, you know, a lot of things. Um, but I think that, you know, it's it's important to have conversations with lots of different people and, and be willing, as we said earlier, to be willing to, to kind of feel uh, exposed by those conversations, you know, to listen to what people with different experiences from us are saying and feel really vulnerable and exposed by the truth of what they're saying and how it relates to our own behaviours. Do you think that... um, So one of the things that I don't understand is that I quite like, you know, uh, being provoked by somebody's ideas. I don't have to even Mm. think that they're right at the end of it. But I've never felt harmed by reading something, as you said, someone else's perspective. Here's what, through their eyes, they mm. think of this thing. And it doesn't mean that by the end of it, I'll be like, oh, oh, mm. well, I absolutely agree. Everything they said is absolutely right. But I've never been a person who, uh, I like that. Even people mm. who, you know, have completely opposite uh, you know, opinions to how the world works, to what I do if they're, you know, well argued and, and well thought out. And it's, I always find it quite interesting to go, oh, I never would have thought of mm. it from from that point of view. But I imagine, or at least I see some of the, like, oh, gee, Clem, this is like such a, <laughs> I'm having like such a difficult time with this today. And well, I, th- I think I, that, I, I, I like on. being I like being challenged in a way that, changes my mind at the end of something. I don't like being provoked by things where when I get to the end, I'm like, you're wrong. Um, You know, and I don't like reading articles about, say, for example, oh, well, you know, what about men? What about men? What about male? You know, the the water battery just provokes me because I think that it's, it's selfish and ignorant and it's once again shifting the focus of an important conversation back onto well let's make sure that you know it's this it's this impulse that um a lot of men have and some women where if you're in order for them to legitimize your feminist goals they need to make sure you need to reassure them that you're not actually seeking to change any part of their life at all that, that your feminism can exist outside of their own privilege and the, their own experience of being a man and the things that they get from being a man and that they will allow you to continue with it as long as you can show them that it will not take anything away from them and it will have no impact on them whatsoever. And if, if you refuse to do that, then you're assaulting them, you're attacking them and you're threatening their existence and what about the men? Why are you attacking men? Why do you hate men? Et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I think a really good example of this is in the way that it, let's talk about um, equality of representation in the government. So if we want to have a truly representative democracy, we need to have, a, and, I, and I think that, you know, that we can only sort of talk about the, that democracy in the world that we live in now. As I said earlier, like I think we need to dismantle tons of 
structures of power. Won't happen in my lifetime. But if we want to have a truly representative democracy in the world that we live in now, then we need to not have that democratic body dominated as it is by white, middle-class, middle-aged men. And that, again, is just a fact. That is the Those are the people who occupy most of the seats in parliament. Those are the people who get to be the leaders. Um, if we wanted to be true, sounds like your manhood. <laughs> if we wanted to be truly representative, we've got to have a lot more women. We've got to have a lot more people of color. We've got to have disabled people in parliament. You know, it's only been this year, and I have no love for Scott Morrison's government, but it's only this year that the that the minister for Indigenous Affairs is finally an Indigenous person. Um, you know, we need we. A, a representative democracy does not look like the government that we have right now. And so if you said to people, well, we need to change the structure of it, we need to introduce quotas and methods, but, and quotas work. And the reason that we need quotas is because people are still lagging their feet when it comes to actually thinking that diverse people can fulfil these positions because their default position is that men and white men in particular never have to prove their merit in the way that everyone else does. No one ever says of the parliament as exist, as it exists now, oh, well, this is it should be about bloody merit. It shouldn't just be about giving men jobs, which it is. Um, so yeah, that one, um, if I get, can just jump in because I do, yeah, sure. uh, which is, um, stop interrupting me. <laughs> uh, you, you have clearly been the one person who's got uh, you know, good points to make on this podcast. <laughs> I, I might edit all of me out <laughs> and just have a lovely little, uh, conversation, just you with you. But, uh, this one is such a one that frustrates me the most, which is that idea of like, well, it's just about merit. We just want the yeah. best people. And I'm like, are you honestly looking at these people and thinking they are the best people? I know. But also... It relies on the premise, do you believe that women are equally, and let's just use women and men in this yeah, example, yeah. but I know you can broaden it out to represent you know, all groups who are not represented properly in this example, but just for yep. the simple sake of men and women, right? Do you believe as a general principle that men and women are equally capable of doing these jobs? Yes, right? Are men and women equally represented in these jobs? No. Therefore, there's something wrong with the system itself that women can't... Or secretly, you believe that women aren't equally capable well, that's, of doing But that's this. the other thing. Yeah. You've either then got to say, well, I don't. I don't yeah. believe. I think men are better, I, are better th than this. But if you honestly believe mm. that men and women are equally capable of doing those jobs and it's not being reflected in the job itself, then there's something wrong with the way that people with the job with mm. the way the job is structured that is not allowing men and women to be equally represented. Yeah, so you know, people will make excuses for that saying, "Oh, well it's not it's women's fault that they're not equally represented." A because women women don't put themselves forward for these positions. Why don't more women run? And you know, that excuse me, that completely ignores the fact that in the two-party preferred system you know, I can't just go to the Labor Party and say I want to run for the seat of Moreland, you know, or I, I, uh, what is it in, I can't remember what my seat is. Anyway, I can't just go and say I want to run for the city of Melbourne. I have to be pre-selected into that role. And that also, I can't also just walk in and say I want to be pre-selected into that role. It involves years of, um, unless you're famous, it, in, it involves years of working within the system behind the public face of it in or, and working within those dynamics, again, all of which are dominated by white men, to 
be considered meritorious in the first place to even then be put before the voting public who will then bring their own unconscious bias about whether or not you as a woman are capable of performing this job. It's why, it's honestly, it's why um, women, if they want to elect more women into the party, into, into the system, then they put women in safe seats because it's too big a risk to put a woman in a seat that's marginal because they know that the voting public will default to that un- unconscious bias about men being better for the job. So when you talk about merit, as you said, like you can't possibly look at the government government that we have now and say, well, that's those are all the best people in the country. Um, you have to acknowledge that there is a whole system of hoops and obstacles that you've got to jump through to even get to that point. And based on what you look like when you turn up to to start that competition will determine how easy or how difficult your run is. You know, and so they they say, oh, well, the the track's the same length. You know, it's not like they have to run a longer race. Sure, but the track that white middle-class, middle-aged men who have connections get to run is very, very smooth and the track that, you know, white women get to run is slightly less smooth and the track that men of color get to run is less smooth than that, et cetera, et cetera. All of these different, the track is the same length, sure, but the actual terrain is very different. And also besides that, we need to be, if you want to have, again, coming back to this idea, if you want to have truly representative democracy, if you value the, the reality that multiple diverse communities should have a say in how the government is formed and should have a say in the values of the country that we live in, then you then you have to be really, really committed to making that, like changing that process, you know. And um, I think that the, you know, one of the really important things that the government needs to do right now is to adopt the Uluru Statement. You know, we need to have that Indigenous voice in Parliament. And there are you know, I, I did an event the other night with Tila Reid and she's an incredible person working in this space and, you know, really signal boosting this this um, drive that is being, that we are being gifted by Aboriginal people in this country. And that's what, you know, that's one of the most important things that our government can do. And the fact that it's not doing it shows, you know, just how discarded or shows again just how discarded and disregarded Aboriginal people are in this country, you know, the, the first people of Australia. It's uh, one of the things that I, as I've got older, um, I've realised, well, one of the things I try to do with this podcast, I'll just try to make it personal so that I don't try to speak for a whole bunch of things that I am not qualified to speak for or for people that I'm not qualified to speak for. I'll just speak, you know, about my own personal experience. So for this podcast, I try to have a broad range of voices, you know, and I try to, you know, male and female, you know, try to have a a balance of that, but also try to, you know, have other voices, people of color and these sort of things. Sometimes it's, it's easy to book a straight white man, partly because every level of where you're getting people from is dominated by those straight moments. So it has a systematic effect. You know, I could walk through this building and find four, you know, blokes to get on the podcast. Occasionally it's a harder for a whole bunch of different reasons to get the female guests. And I think there was a point of 
time and, you know, with my industry comedy, this was certainly the case where, well, there's not as many women doing comedy, so you don't have as many women on the show, right? Rather than going, well, there should be an equal number on. So if it takes you a little bit of extra effort to make sure that there's an equal number on, that's your responsibility, not Mm. just because ones are easier doesn't mean it's right. Yeah. And just because it's easier to find men doing, like in your example, just because it's easier to find men doing comedy doesn't mean there aren't women out there who who are amazing comedians, but who just haven't had the same breaks, you know? I mean, uh, yeah, I've I've run up against that too. Oh, it's just so hard to find them. You know, it's not, it's not so hard to find them. It's harder, yeah. but actually, if you broaden out your, you know, where you're looking, and if you actually become, you, you know, if you if you seek different content and you use the, use the people that you know to say, who do you know who's doing really amazing work in this space or whatever, it's actually it becomes a lot easier than you than you might think. Another really important point to remember as well is the the confidence that people bring to that role because of how they've been treated. So if you speak to any booker um, who, you know, say books events for the Wheeler Centre or who books talent for Q&A, they'll say consistently that one of the reasons why it's harder to get women to appear on those shows, not only is because, you know, using Q&A as a specific example, is because women get a much higher level of backlash from the viewing public and much more sexualized and violent, of course. Um, you know, women, it's, it's, it's more difficult to get a female politician to agree on the show because they'll be, the backlash that they receive will be significantly higher than their male colleagues. And if they make a mistake, they'll be seen to have, you know, destroyed the reputation of the entire party. But also because women tend to question our expertise in a way that men don't, you know, and if, again, if you speak to any booker, they'll say that they could speak to a man who's not even working in a particular area of expertise and say, you know, can you come and talk about this thing? Oh yeah, I reckon I can do that. He'll say. And the woman who might have, you know, a PhD in the particular field of expertise might respond by saying, oh, I don't know if I really am qualified to do it or Whatever. I mean, that's just one example of, of, of that difference. No, I think that's true. Adam Spencer used to have a lovely way of describing it when we were working together on Triple J, which was that uh, um, a man farts in an elevator, he thinks everybody needs to hear about it, and a woman climbs Everest and he goes, well, people have climbed Everest. It's not that big a <laughs> yeah, deal. Yeah. You know? It's like that confidence of a yeah. mediocre white male. You know, God grant me the confidence of a medio- mediocre white male. Now, very fortunately, I think I do have the confidence of a mm. mediocre white male, so... <laughs> It's worked out in my favour. <laughs> uh, well, you're being interviewed by a mediocre white male today, Clem. So uh, thank you so much for doing this. I have some genuine questions that I always ask, sure. and we're getting you know, towards you know time limits, so I want to ask some of those as well. Um, so firstly, do you have a general philosophy to anything? That's the loose premise of the podcast. We dived in, and mm-hmm. I've heard a million of them already, uh, but is there anything uh, – do you have a specific philosophy that, you, that, that guides you in any way? Yeah, I mean, I guess we've touched on it a lot in this hour and that is that just because something is uncomfortable doesn't mean that you should shy away from it. I think that leaning into discomfort is a really important, powerful thing for us to do. Yeah, I I love that. I think that's absolutely fantastic. Do you have um, any thoughts about death? It's one thing I I ask a lot on this is, is death Mm. something that is in your mind? Are you a person who you know, worries about Mm. death, who thinks about death? You know, when I was a child, I was a chronic hypochondriac. I was a really anxious child. And, um, 
you know, thankfully I had parents who didn't believe in any kind of medical intervention, so never got help for it. Um, and I worried a lot about it and, you know, really caused me a great deal of anxiety. And, the, you know, now that I'm older, I, my mum died when I was 25, so I dealt, I've dealt with, up to this point, the most traumatic death of my life. Um, hopefully for a long time that will be, that will remain the, the most traumatic death. Um, my philosophy on it now is that I don't want to die yet, but when the time comes, I don't want to live forever. When the time comes, I will be really excited to see what happens. And if nothing happens, it's fine. You just go to dust. You don't even know about it. But if something happens, well, as my mum used to say, quoting, um, Hamlet, you know, there are more things on heaven and earth than can be dreamt of in your philosophy, Horatio. And if something happens, then to quote Peter Pan, death will be an awfully big adventure. Uh, that is a really lovely way of putting it. I, 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 I like that a lot. Um, can I ask you, uh, what do you think your best quality is? Hmm. It's hard to talk about your qualities. I think that I am disp- you know, despite what some people whose only experience of me is in the public would think, I think I'm a very open person. I think I am, I think I'm really interested in people. So I think that's a good quality to have is curiosity. Um, I also think that I am, I think I'm a really good mum. And that's a, that's a quality that I really value that I, I, try to create space for my son that is, you know, I try to provide him with the routine that I know that he needs and the reliability that I will always be there, that I can't always physically be there because I might have to go to work, but that I will always come back. And, you know, I try to give him good values. And I, I also try to remember that parenthood and particularly motherhood is not just about sending, setting boundaries and being the disciplinarian and being the boring parent, but to actually like remember to have fun with him and to play games and be silly and, you know, dance in public with him and do all of the things that, you know, in five years time, he's going to be extremely humiliated to have me do in public. But I want him to remember his childhood as being one of safety and um, assuredness and also, you know, just really filled with a lot of love. So I think that I'm really good at that. Where, where does that philosophy of parenthood come from? Was it something that you thought about a lot? Is it something that is instinctive to you that you, or is it something that you read about? Is it a combination of all those things? I mean, I do read stuff that I find, you know, really instructive and, um, I guess I'm, my parents, I have good relationship. Well, as I said, my mum's dead now, but I had really good relationships with my parents when I was little. And I remember my life being quite fun and exciting. And, you know, we were a family that was very affectionate and we always told each other that, and we still do say, I love you. And, um, I always feel really sad when, and not everyone's family is close. I know that, but I always feel really sad when I hear from people that they don't talk to their parents or that they never say, I love you. And their parents never tell them that they love them. And there's a multitude of reasons for those kinds of things. But I just think that to be able to have a childhood and a family that does make you feel safe and does make you feel loved and valued is such an enormous gift. And so I had that in lots of ways. In some ways, you know, it's that Philip Larkin 
poem, you, you fuck your kids up, or your parents fuck your kids up. Um, you know, we all we all fuck our kid, kids up in some way. It's just about trying to cause the minimal amount of fuck up as possible. So, um, yeah, I mean, I guess it, it comes from that. And also just I feel like an enormous responsibility to to make sure that he is a good person and particularly because he's a boy, I feel really um, emotionally invested now in, in the work that I've done, you know, prior to having him was very determined and very much on, and it still is on the side of like how women are affected by patriarchy, but having him has given me a really emotional and personal investment in how men are affected and conditioned by patriarchy. And it's not just about instructing men now for me. It's actually about helping to instruct him, but also shield him from the burdens that patriarchy puts on men. So that, I guess, is kind of where a lot of that attitude comes from. Do you think you're brave? I think you're brave. I, I, when I think of you, I always think of you as being brave. Is that something that you would identify as yourself? I think that I am... Uh, I think I'm very determined and confident to pursue what I think is right. And I have become very good at kind of blazing forward despite some, I mean, you know, people see some of the things that are said to me and they, they feel like that's what it must be like all the time. But actually it's really, really outweighed by the positive feedback that I get. And that makes a big difference. That helps you be brave knowing that there are people who are sort of standing with you. But I'm really cowardly in lots of ways too, like in some of the in some of the ways that, you know, general kind of phobias. I'm really scared of the dark. I hate the dark. Um, I'm really scared of flying. I'm scared of, uh, you know, that hypochondria th- that I talked about having as a child, I still have now. Um, I have a lot of anxiety about lots of normal everyday life things. So to me to kind of be whatever quote unquote brave in this space doesn't necessarily make me feel like a hugely brave person because a lot of the time I just feel like a big mess. <laughs> uh, what do you think your weakness is? If you is it is it that or is do you, no, if I, mean, if I asked you, I don't what think anxiety is a weakness. No. I think it's. Um, I think. Oh God, I've got a lot of weaknesses. I think that I. You know, like you, I've made tons of mistakes in my life and I think I can be really arrogant. Um, I think that's a weakness for sure. And I think that I can be quite bullheaded about some things. Um, As I get older, I'm becoming better about trying to stop and think of things from different perspectives. And as you said, you know, not even if I don't end up agreeing with them, I mean, within a limit, I'm never going to think about racism from a different perspective, for example. Um, but yeah, I think that, I think that I, I can be, I can be too, um, dogged. I, I agree that I'd never, you, you, I, like, I like what you said. You know, I never think about racism from a different perspective, but I do think sometimes that what I would, if I hear about somebody whose experience is living in one community and if I want to understand where their racism comes from in a way that we can, mm-hmm. you know, deal with it, often I do like to, you know, okay, I will read yours. It will give me a different perspective. It won't change the way I think necessarily, but it'll let me understand how you think 
better. And I think in the past I've been guilty of, you know, thinking that, I, you, you know, a really good example was it's very easy to be green when you live in the inner city of Melbourne. Like, yeah. the, whereas like, you know, people, you know, in Queensland as it showed in the election, there was a real gap in understanding of how people saw issues around the environment because of the different way they live their life and the different way they consume their news and the different way they have conversations with each other at the pub. And if you don't make an effort to hear those voices, if I don't make an effort to hear those voices, then you're never going to understand, you know, how we can all change to together. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you this, if you had a time machine and you could go back to a moment in your life and change it, would you take it? Oh, no. Because even though there are so many moments in my life that I would love to change or even just revisit, oh, I feel like I'm going to cry saying this. Everything in my life led to me having my son. And if I changed anything that could, you know, like the butterfly flaps its wings and causes a tidal wave half a world away, if I changed anything that would change that, then even though I wouldn't, I guess presumably you'd come back and you wouldn't know about it, but maybe you would. I just wouldn't, yeah. There's lots of things that I, – I, I have lots of regrets about the way that I've – about certain things that I've done in my life and and how I dealt with certain things and things that I would love to, you know, not cringe under a blanket at 3 a.m. when my anxious brain thinks about them. I'd love to go back and see my mum again, you know, just spend more time with her. But you just have to accept that life – takes you to the points that it takes you and I mean that's another philosophy that I have and it's kind of Pollyanna and again maybe I'm really lucky and privileged to be able to say this but yeah I just feel like all of the things that that happened in my life have led me to the point that I'm at now and the single most important thing in my life is my child and I couldn't do anything that could possibly threaten his existence. Uh, Last but uh you know, not least, I, I hope, but uh, last is uh, when people speak of you, what would you hope they say about you? Hmm. <laughs> I'm just thinking about that scene in the office where David Brent is trying to dictate the journalist's interview about him. Brent quipped. Um, what would I, what do you, what do I want them to say about me? She tried her best. I think that's, that's a pretty good thing to have people say. She tried her best. Um, you know, you're never going to get everyone loving you. And I, I actually don't think you should want everyone to love you because if you, if you strive for everyone to love you at all times, it means you're not you're not actually really challenging anyone. Um, and I think you should be okay with people not liking you. It shouldn't be a fear that you have that people don't like you or that you need people's approval. So all you can do in the end is just try your best to be a good person or to strive towards that goodness, to love your children, to love the people around you and to try and try and make the changes in the world that other people aren't able to or that you have more power and access to be able to do. So try try her best. Uh, you have been amazing today. Thank you so much for doing this. I re- genuinely appreciate it. I 
feel like, uh, you know, that I didn't get any man-hating from you. I've got a bit of man-hating from me. Self-man-hating. <laughs> well, that's I, I my think. witchy power. Yeah, I exactly. You hate yourself. You made me hate me. <laughs> Damn. Uh, I, I do feel like, and again, this is not meant to be overly self-flagellating, you know, mm-hmm. to use that term. But I do, I loved your books. I think they're amazing. I just think they're fantastic. I love your writing, uh, you know. As I said, even when I go, well, that's not exactly what I think or I agree with that, I always am glad that you've said it. I'm always glad that I've read it. I'm always glad that my brain has had to think about something from that perspective. Um, I, I don't think you've ever written anything that I didn't, you know, afterwards think, well, I'm, you know, I'm glad that I read that and um, I'm so glad that you did this podcast. I wish that I had been better, but I can't do anything oh about God, that. I'm so glad that you I, invited me on. Thank I tried you. my best. <laughs> will you <laughs> Will you come on? I'm starting a podcast. Will you come on it? I would love to. Yeah, that'd be it's, great. It's called Conversations with Men and it's me talking to men about masculinity. I mean, I might be better like that. on that one. I think I was, <laughs> I think the problem with this one is I, I wanted to, I had so many things I really wanted to talk about, but yeah, this this is hopefully about you today, and oh, I hope look, that you enjoy it. It's such a big topic that you know. Anyway, yeah, my it's, brain it's exploded a, a few times early on. Clem, you, you tried your best. Will, I tried my best, as did I. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you.